Welcome back to Afterburner, the Project Boom podcast. I'm Allison Gundrum, a senior at Mount Horeb High School, a systems integration team member, and the producer of Afterburner. On this week's episode, we get you up to speed on how our teams are troubleshooting and collaborating between systems to forward our designs, and go in-depth with Matt Stott about the importance of good project management in engineering. For all this and more, stay tuned for this week's episode of Afterburner. Welcome back to Afterburner. I'm your host, Shiva Valbanani, a rising senior in aerospace engineering from Purdue University. And with me today is Colin Watson. Colin Watson is our founder and project lead here at Project Boom and will be going into his second year at the University of Oklahoma. Hey, Colin, what's up? <laughs> All right. Hey, everybody. Hopefully uh, my audio is a little bit better this week. I uh, ordered a new mic and uh, we'll see how it sounds. But yeah, thank you for the introduction, Shiva. I'm Colin Watson, the founder of Project Boom. I'm a sophomore aerospace engineering student at the University of Oklahoma, and I apologize for the background behind me. I'm preparing and packing for school. I move in in about a week, so that's exciting. Yeah, all right. Before we get into it, what's new this week in Project Boom, Colin? Well, like every week, we have a lot going on. Right now, all of our subsystems are ramping up for our AIAA town hall presentation on August 19th. That is pretty much going to be a preliminary, a very short preliminary design review in front of some industry professionals and recruiters, along with different students um, within AIAA. So we're super excited for that because we really want to show off all the hard work that our students have been putting in. Specifically, our aero team is working alongside a lot of our different subsystems to start doing some integration within our fuselage. And so one, they're working with propulsion to talk about the inlet design. Um, that's a huge thing for our aircraft because that's going to limit our top speed for one with drag as well as maintaining the flame within our turbine. Yeah, and definitely with the inlet, right, Colin, the shape and size of it determines the, the speed our air enters in. And, you know, if we have a speed that's way too fast and if we create a shock within our inlet then or within, or to the engine, then the whole plane will not work. Yeah, yeah. Um, a huge thing because we're talking about going supersonic and we would like to go supersonic while air breathing. A huge part of that is designing an inlet that can um, produce the right shocks to slow our air down and make sure we don't damage our turbine when we pass through um, the supersonic regime. And along with that, our structures team is working with our aerodynamic team to get wing loadings and stuff like that to make sure our wings don't snap off if we make a turn. Stability and control is in a constant fight with our aerodynamics team to make our wings larger and our aerodynamics team wants to make them smaller for drag reasons. So that's always interesting conversations. And then integration is working with all these teams on the same thing as well as figuring out how we're going to recover and take off our aircraft because there's some interesting designs. They're talking about flying it into a net at 80 miles an hour. so that will be interesting if we decide to do that. We had some interesting uh, conversations this week where we were thinking of things where, you know, you had a hook that would just hook the aircraft as it flies by, as it flies into a net. Or we, we thought of parachutes at first, but parachutes kind of cause a problem for on the aerodynamic side. So with integration, it's kind of been a battle of seeing, okay, how are we going to land this thing? Yeah, yeah. For people that think parachute sounds great at first, but when, then when you do some math, we need a 30-foot diameter parachute, and then we still hit the ground relatively hard. So that's why we're not going that route, because packing that parachute into the aircraft takes up quite a bit of space that we could use for fuel. Um, or just shrink the aircraft overall. And then we're also talking about just putting landing gear on it and taking it off like a normal person, but um, that's kind of boring. So we'll see how we do that. Um, That's pretty much the main updates for the project this week. Our team's been hard at work like every week. So proud and honored to work with all of them because they're doing amazing. Yeah, we got one more big announcement for Project Boom and 
if you're watching on YouTube, Colin, you might want to lift up your shirt there and show everybody the new logo. No, no, no. no. We're going we're gonna to keep it a secret for a little bit. We'll keep it a secret until probably our presentation. But, uh, yeah, we have some merchandise coming out. If anybody's interested in buying Project Boom merch, all the proceeds for that go towards supporting our project and helping us continue on because it's not cheap to build a supersonic plane. But, yeah, Shiva's been working very hard on our marketing, um, creating an amazing logo that we're really excited to show off to the world. And then we're also dropping a new website very soon. Thank you to Symbol designs they've been working with us to design a wireframe for our, our website so all exciting stuff and we're excited to show you guys the new project boom brand all right coming right up we have a very special guest so fasten your seatbelts. it's time for liftoff as a student-led initiative attempting a task that has never been accomplished it is important that we tell the story of this incredible project from the start. A group of highly motivated kids from all over the world facing more than one barrier. The sound barrier is just the destination. This is the journey. Welcome to Afterburner. Today we have Matt Stott, aerospace program management professional who has worked from Cobham Mission Systems for the past eight years. Matt has established himself as a leader in the aerospace industry with a master's and bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Leeds. In the past 10 years, Matt has worked as a project engineer developing air-to-air -air refueling systems, delivering the next generation aerial refueling technology for companies like Boeing, as well as US Air Force customers. Matt has worked on major projects and has now moved to the US and is looking to take on bigger projects and make his mark in the aerospace world. To have Matt as an advisor at Project Boom is something we're really excited about. With his experience in the UK being different than mine or Colin's experience, I can't wait to dive deeper into his journey in the professional world and discuss his, his ideas for Project Boom. All right, Matt Stout, welcome to the show. Hey guys, how's it going? Great, great, very good, I'm good. Thanks All for right. having me on, I'm really excited to talk to you guys. Yes, thank you, I'll give a a quick I'll boost Matt up and thank him because Matt's been super helpful in the project management side we're all learning here so Matt's been kind of here holding our hand a little bit so thank you Matt for that you are definitely welcome Matt I really wanted to dive deep into it very fast here on the podcast so I want to ask how did you become an engineer I feel like every engineer has their own journey so tell me about your story sure so um as you mentioned, I studied aerospace engineering in the UK. Really, my motivation for getting into aerospace was probably not too dissimilar from you guys. I just find everything that goes fast and, and burns hot interesting. And when I looked at my studies as I was approaching university time, I was into maths and physics, and I just kind of triangulated those two things together into engineering. And then when I looked at all the available engineering courses, aerospace just stuck out to me. I, I love I love planes, I love spacecraft, I love space exploration, all that. So it was just a natural fit for me. And then, you know, moving through studies and, and becoming an engineer, it's, it, it really fits with, um, if you're a person that just likes to figure out how things work, how things get put together, and really interrogate systems and how things uh, interact with each other. I think if, if you're an analytical person, um, engineering is just such a natural fit. And and that's kind of how my mind works. So engineering is, even though I'm not technically an engineer in my current capacity, I'm, I'm more of a manager. I love my background in engineering and I think that's what really differentiates me as a manager. 
Yeah, I think when I got on this project and met Colin and and started working, I feel like my role has been more, you know, setting the foundation for us to do things in marketing. I know Colin can speak to this as well a little bit. So Colin, why don't you talk about your experience? Yeah, yeah. So I think, Matt, you're going to talk about this in a little bit, but talking about how project management and just being able to, I think a huge part of engineering that people don't realize is being able to deal with other people and talk to other people. Communication is like key in engineering. It's one of the most important things um, because you're telling people very complex things um, and you have to be able to communicate that in a clear way um, because a lot of times like people's lives depend on it and stuff like that and there's obviously obviously ways to do that through correct documentation and paperwork and stuff like that but whenever you're just working with someone um, in an office or like we are virtually you have to be able to communicate very well and I think managing a project or taking a leadership role I encourage anybody in this like take a leadership role in anything it doesn't have to be engineering like be your student government on your university campus or on your high school campus within one of your engineering clubs even though it's not necessarily the most exciting thing I would love honestly to spend 100% of my time on this project um, designing the aircraft but I wanted to kind of push myself out of my comfort zone um, try something I haven't tried and manage people um, of a whole bunch of different backgrounds, which is unique about this project, as well as people that are a lot older than me and a lot more experienced than me. So communicating with those people has been interesting. I had to learn a lot, um, and I'm always learning from those people. So that's, uh, yeah. Colin, I I think you really hit the nail on the head there because uh, as much as engineering studies are so intensive and you've got to learn so much information, all very technical there you cannot underestimate that once you're out of an academic environment and into the working world there's a lot of things that studies can't and really i guess don't need to teach you and and that's really the communication the working with people you you should get experience of that during a studies like you said working on on projects and you know my degree program had a sort of management and economics module but you know the moment you get thrown into an environment where you're working with people of all different backgrounds with all different expertise that's when the learning i think really begins and you can apply the things you've learned yeah i wanted to touch on this a bit matt we've talked a little bit before the podcast started and you have this really awesome uh warm welcoming personality and i want to ask was there a time going from school and then into the workplace where you were like oh shoot how do i talk to these people how do i make sure i'm communicating what i want to I think it can be intimidating a little bit when you're put into an environment where you don't know the subject matter. For example, my first role out of university working for Cobham in the UK was on a, um, we call it a graduate development program, which is, I, I realize doesn't translate very well between the UK and US because that, that I've had a lot of people in the UK ask me when I was on the program, so what are you studying? Well, it's actually something that you do after you've graduated and then you join this program, you move around, do different placements. Uh, but my first role was in corporate finance. So I, I was working with a, a senior vice president of finance for a, a massive multinational corporation. And I knew zero about finance, profit and loss statements, you know, all, all these things that I just didn't learn. But the important thing is when you get into industry is just to, you know, be humble, be acknowledge the things you don't know. And I, I've said this to everyone who's, who's ever worked for me is just be a sponge, like just absorb as much information as you possibly can never stop asking questions. Frankly, I, I want to get to the point where I'm getting kind of irritated by the amount of questions you're asking me, because I think that means you're doing the right thing and you should always be asking questions. And I've been fortunate um, in my career to have fantastic bosses and mentors that have had the patience to put that time in into the interactions they have with me and just really explain things in, in, in a way that 
allows me to truly understand. And, and, and I think as you, as you move through your careers, you, you'll find that when you learn stuff and you apply it, when it really starts to hit home and you really sort of elevate your understanding is when you start to then teach that to someone else. You know, it's one thing to absorb information, to learn it and to use it. But I think when once you start to get in a position, and anyone can do this, you don't need to be a manager to do this. When you start to pass on that knowledge and teach it, that really crystallizes that knowledge in your own mind. And it's a pretty fundamental psychological thing, like the way you retain information and all that. So yeah, I mean, what you guys are doing on this project, I, I see... I see that, you know, not only are you, you guys, um, Colin and Shiva, learning how to design an aircraft, how to manage a project, but there's people um, in the wider project team, you know, you've got 170 odd people all around the world. And there's, there's people that can use your, your knowledge from your experience so far through your studies. You're more progressed than certain people. You've got, you know, high school kids, which is fantastic. And passing on that that knowledge and just showing people that it's okay to sort of be vulnerable and to not know, but as long as you're putting yourself out there and just being willing to take that information, that's what learning's all about. Yeah, I li- I love that you said that because that's been I've probably said this a hundred times on the podcast before, but that's been a huge mission statement for our project since the beginning. And I know I've said this before in the podcast. Cole talked about how our chief engineer he talked about how he's going to cambridge he's br- absolutely brilliant he's a gates cambridge scholar but he's like i don't know how to build a supersonic aircraft like i'm learning alongside with you like right now and you're three years behind me in your um, education but like we're on equal level in a lot of ways when we're going forward with this and like with the high scores a lot of high scores on our project and like they are doing exactly what you said like they're just being sponges they're sucking it up and then they're putting themselves out there and like attempting things that a lot of times high scores won't have the chance to attempt like design an airfoil or even learn about an airfoil or something in a purposeful way so it's been amazing to watch them it's been super inspiring for me like to just see these students that I know if I was in their position it'd be so intimidating to come into this with a whole bunch of university students um, graduate level students and be a high school going to be like hey i'll help out like right so yeah just be a sponge and you can really achieve some amazing things i think three of our four like outstanding members that we've done we shout someone out every week have been high scores and they only there's only 11 on the team i believe out of 170 so um it's not like we're all high scores it's just they're doing some amazing stuff and really jumping in so that's super exciting i also want to touch on you said uh things are a little different here in the u.s than they are in the uk with uh the program that you did after and i think that transfers into a lot of different things um silly and make some funny situations probably for you you've told us a couple of them yeah sure so moving across from the uk to the us in 2013 i was quickly confronted with you know I, you, you think we speak the same languages right we, we both <laughs> english speaking countries well it ain't quite so that they simple say, yeah yeah and it, and it really the, the more i've been here and the more i've learned about the difference in you know vocabulary and idioms and phrases and all that and it's, it's even different in the US you know you've got states that you could have one person talk to another person they might not fully understand each other so yeah. so that's compounded when you're talking about you know UK and US and you know a couple of examples that I love to to tell people about is when I first came out to the UK I was working on a, a body fuel tank program so developing internal body fuel tanks for the KC-46 uh, aerial refueling tanker and and that thing is is wholly made about uh, of aluminum what were you going to say <laughs> <Yeah>. there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just proving my point here. Um, and, you know, c- coming into it, I was sort of a little bit stiff up a lit British, like, no, I'm, I'm going to say aluminium. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach these, these Americans what's up. 
And then after a while, I was like, there's just no point me sticking to my guns on this one. I'm sending hundreds of emails and on a hundred calls every day and trying to, trying to um, explain the history of the word uh, aluminium and explain why my word version is the right one, which is just pointless. So I, I gave up pretty quickly on that one and, and I'm, I'm officially an aluminum convert. But yeah. there's, a, there's a few that I, I'll never, I just, I just don't think I'll ever be able to give up. Like I'm a, pro, yeah. I'm a program manager, so I'm always working with schedules. schedules. And, and the number of times uh. people look at me and they're like, what, what do you use? <laughs> Schedule? And I, I, I personally, I would feel like I'd be giving up my uh, my national identity if I said schedule. So. <laughs> Man, schedule just sounds so much better, though. Well, yeah, I don't that's, know. That's your perspective. <laughs> I, I, think, I think schedule sounds so much more refined. I think what it teaches you, you know, my experience of that transition uh, working internationally is what it comes down to is just giving you a different perspective. It's not just words. It's, it's you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the culture behind the words. I've worked in you know, three or four different businesses in the UK before I moved out here. And I've worked in a couple different businesses, um, including, uh, you know, on-site customer facilities in the US and everywhere does things slightly differently. And and I, I think um, you're, you're in your previous podcast, Aldo made a great point about how you could spend your entire career at Boeing and then move to NASA have to learn every, kind of everything again. There's a different way of doing things no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. And, and being able to move from one environment to another you know adapt to that new environment is really what's going to enable you to to be the best sort of engineer or project manager or whatever you are because then you can just pick up what you're learning absorb it adapt and if if you're too too in your own lane and you don't want to like take a different perspective it's going to be a difficult ride for you yeah i've always heard that like you go to university to learn how to learn and that's why you're going to school because even just to make some people feel better, like our chief engineer for the project he even talked about, he's like, I don't remember what I necessarily learned in like my statics class, like exactly. But he, a lot of times, one, it gives you a basis of at least you know what to look for. And also it just teaches you how to learn. And that's what all these classes are for. So if you're like uh, just graduated or you're going through school and you're worried about not 100% understanding everything you go through, I think that's not necessarily the important part. It's just one, are you willing to put in the effort to learn it and learn how to learn it? That's such a huge thing. I think uh, one thing for me, especially on Project Boom, is sometimes I'll be, I'll hear a term, I'll hear a word in like the arrow meeting, for example, and then I'll be like, oh wait, I know that from somewhere. So I'll go back and I'll find my my notebook that I've written, you know, written all my notes in for aerodynamics. I'll scroll through and be like, Ah, okay, there it is, that one paragraph, and, you know, I kind of read it, redigest. So I think forgetting what you learn is not a bad thing, because it's always going to be there somewhere, but having that initial understanding and being able to jump right in is something that is really valuable, at least for me. I don't feel like I know less just because I have to go and look it up, you know, um, which is something that I feel like a lot of people will be like, oh, shoot, I don't know this, I don't know that, and then that eats them alive, being like, okay, I'm not as good as this person. I'm not as good as that person. But I think it's really uh, awesome to hear that that's not what you're really going to be measured up against. Yeah. It's just about your availability to, to jump in and, and figure things out. Yeah, I'm the complete opposite of you. I hear one of those words and I'm like, I have never heard that before in my life because <laughs> I haven't even gotten in like any aerodynamic classes yet. Um, but no, it was super like, I felt so good because that was a huge stress of mine. It was like, I'm going through these classes but like, I don't think I could sit down from the knowledge I have without resources around me to like 
take what I've learned and like use it, right? Like I feel like I need something to help me. But then um, when we started this project, I was working with, working with Cole, our chief engineer, a lot one-on-one with like doing analysis and stuff and watching him like frantically flip through some like textbooks and stuff. It was like, okay, you always have those resources, but at least like you learn where to look for the information and where to even start. And I think that's really the importance of classes, which you might have a different perspective, Matt, as someone who's gone through university and into the professional world, but no, I, I think I think what you just said makes makes a lot of sense. And what Project Boom is 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 enabling you guys to do is, like I said, apply the learning that you've garnered through your studies, and and that's the way you learn. Like I'm reading a super interesting book at the moment called Limitless by Jim Quick, and it's basically uh, teaches you methods to like the, the the way you you can learn, the way you can absorb information quicker, the way you can remember things, and it really comes down to just putting what you've learned into practice. The best way to forget something is to learn it and then never use it. And what you guys are doing on Project Boom while you're studying, or, or for people who haven't got into those studies yet, is learning theoretical concepts and then applying them to an actual real-world case. And, and that's how you understand. You, you take the sort of you know double integration formulas that are kind of up here in the ether, and you're not quite sure how they relate to actual <laughs> uh, real-world cases, and then you apply them, and, and that's how you learn. So yeah. You guys are going to get a huge amount of value from this this project, and I'm, I'm super excited to see you know yeah, the, I the, give as it progresses. One example of this, I guess, for people listening, was I was sitting in the aerodynamics meeting, I guess, at the beginning a few weeks ago, and I hear the word like area rule, and I'm like, all right, uh, what's the area rule again? So I'm thinking back to my semester. This past semester, I took aerodynamics for the first time, and so the area rule in general is like the transonic area rule, uh, which is a design technique used to reduce an aircraft's uh, drag at transonic or supersonic speeds, particularly between Mach 7.5 and 1.2. And that's the- 0.75 or 7.5? Sorry, 0.75 and 1.2. And that's kind of the regime that we're working with for Project Boom. So for me, I'm hearing area rule and I'm like opening my textbook. I'm like, okay, what am I looking for? What am I looking for? And I find it. And then I also can connect that back to a li- uh, wing distribution, like for lift. And I read, you know, the most efficient distribution of lift over the wing is in like a parabola shape. And so when I see, go into the meeting and the teams are presenting and they have this chart where the they have this nice parabola and then they have what our aircraft's lift distribution is i'm like all right okay now i'm making these connections and now that i'm seeing it actually being applied that was one of the really the cool the coolest moment for me i guess working on the team yeah yeah that's cool to see things start to connect because it's a lot more fun to do it this way as well than sit in the classroom for an hour and a half yeah so as a project manager as well as having a large technical background what do you think the importance of having a good project management is in engineering or any profession for that matter well, I think it's probably worth just explaining when we talk about project management, what do we mean? Um, yeah. So, so my my experience, and and I've been fortunate enough to to get um, support through my prior employer to get certified as a project management professional, which basically means you learn industry standards and best practices, and then you take a, a formal exam to get a certification. And fundamentally, what project management is 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 managing the execution of projects which are temporary endeavors with you know unique outputs they're distinct from managing say you know operations or a production line which is sort of run rate uh, you've got defined known quantities inputs and outputs 
um, projects, typically you're, you're making something new that's not been done before, whether that's a, an engineering uh, product, a, a supersonic aircraft, it's a software tool or an app, or a, you know, a business change program where you're trying to, uh, you know, putting some strategy in place and making that come to fruition. So, so project management, um, you know, there's three main tenants of it, schedule, cost, and quality. And why that's important for engineering projects is, as you will all learn when you move into industry eventually, uh, you'll get a lot of pressure on doing stuff in a timely manner. You'll get a lot of pressure on doing stuff on or under budget. And you'll get a lot of very important and, and justified pressure on making sure what you create is of the right quality, the right safety level, because it doesn't matter if you make something on time and, and under budget if it doesn't do what it's supposed to and it you know blows up. So um, <laughs> but, so so those you could call it a tenant, couple companies right there, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 I, but I would say actually I I, I would I wanted to emphasize you know the the failure aspect of especially in the development testing type programs which I've been involved in, and I think Project Boom will progress through this phase. You, you can't be afraid to. Um, you know, fail. And, and if you do fail, just fail fast. And Yeah, the SpaceX on. mindset. It, exactly. And, and, it's, and it, I think SpaceX is a great example, but they're, they're not the only one. And, and you have to be mindful of the fact that as you go through development testing, there should be attrition of concepts and ideas and designs. Because if you're only taking one idea forward and it just happens to squeak through, then how do you know that's the best one? So, you know, making sure that you try lots of different things, be willing to, to fail and, you know, with project management in general, it's really about creating a framework to monitor and control a program. So in terms of Project Boom, I think where you guys are at right now with the project, you're kind of in the early preliminary design phase, although you'd soon be progressing into more detailed design. And I, I think uh, as a project manager, we, we tend to hammer on about control a lot. And, and that can sometimes be a little bit too onerous to a sort of innovative early design phase project because there, there needs to be an element of freedom of sort of moving through different concepts and figuring out how you're going to progress. So you can't be expected on day one to have a 18,000 line schedule that knows exactly when you're going to be delivering the first product in two years from now. That's just not practical. It's not pragmatic. So, you know, as, as we've spoken about, Colin, laying out just a broad framework, and I would typically refer to this as a level one schedule that has all of your subsystem groups defined. You've got some big, big handfuls of deliverables within each one of those subsystems, like design the propulsion system, you know, test the avionics suite, et cetera, et cetera. And being able to at least at a very top level, lay those out, define any, any sequencing between those tasks so that you can define throughout the entire project, a critical path to the end result. If your end result is a supersonic aircraft that flies over Mach 1. Well, what are all the activities that you need to do to get there? And what's the longest path through that chain? Now, it, it, it might be that developing a structure that can you know, survive the aerodynamic heating might be the most difficult thing and it's gonna take the most amount of time. And when you lay out tasks in that manner and you can visually view it like that, that then informs how much effort and um, intensity of, of workload you put into those specific tasks you know if, if if your if your most critical path activity was structures say just um anecdotally you'd want to make sure you've got enough people working on that you, you want to make sure you've defined the tasks to an appropriate level to make sure you know exactly what you're doing 
how each task is sequenced and kind of not leaving it up to chance like oh you'll just figure it out and you know maybe it'll all come together at the end because you guys are going to quickly discover i think as you go through this project your your work scope will likely increase exponentially because you're going to get into more and more increasing levels of detail um, all of the interactions between each of the systems and the way that designs are going to need to iterate and feed into each other that that's that's the really challenging bit because if everyone was just working on their own and doing their own little things in, in isolations and their own little bubbles i'm sure you could all be done in half the time but when you then need to bring everything together integrated at the system level that's when that communication and uh, collaboration is super important right and i know especially maybe more than more than you might know we've talked about this in great detail because as a global team it's very easy for everybody who's sitting at home to do anything that they want. And uh, Colin can talk about this more right now, but that scope creep that you talked about is very real. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a constant battle. You've probably dealt with it a lot, like in actual physical workspaces, but like especially virtual, whenever you only talk to someone on a couple of like messages on Slack um, a day or possibly in a meeting, people get their own ideas or maybe misunderstand a message or something. And then they're off doing something completely opposite to what was meant to be done. And then that just delays the project and stuff like that. So like putting in a system that ensures that that happens as little as possible to stay on track, I think has been um, the most difficult thing for us, but the, like the most important thing for us. Yeah. And, and I think managing, you know, you don't want it to be too onerous. I think that's important. You don't want it to be so process intensive that you're taking away from the fundamental purpose of this project, which is to work on a really cool engineering problem with a bunch of really smart and motivated students. So whenever I give you sort of points and tips on sort of project management methods, frankly, I, I don't want you to just take everything I say and, and do it. I want you to challenge me and say, well, how is that going to help? And what will creating this document do for us. And one of the things that appealed to me most about being involved in Project Boom is that I knew that there's a ton that I could learn from you guys. And, and I'm a big believer in sort of lifelong learning. And if there's new tools, software that you guys are using, like I'd never used Slack before, for example, and this whole bid system pro uh, process that you have is like really, uh, you know, interesting to me and is different than what I'm used to. I, I would say I probably have more of a traditional kind of project management background in what, what I would call waterfall project management, where you have a whole bunch of very well-defined requirements at the front end from a customer or internal project documentation. And then you, the reason it's called waterfall is just because on a Gantt chart view, it kind of looks like a cascading waterfall of tasks and everything is very sequential. So you go through your preliminary design, you go through your detail design, you go through your production phase, you go through your delivery. And that works for some projects but it doesn't work for all of them. You know, you think about software development, they don't use that kind of project management methodology. They use what's called agile and scrum, which is a more, much more iterative and, and well, the clues in the name, agile way of managing. Cause you're constantly, you might not know what the end product's gonna be. You don't have those million requirements up front that tell you how to design it and what it needs to look like. Um, so there's a different way of doing that. But I think with you, with your project, the, the thing that excited me is, is how we can you know, how I can give you some tips on my experience, but how we can then also use new and innovative project management ideas and the, the distributed nature of this project, 170 students in 
however many countries 20 30 19, countries nine, yeah 19 different countries and 70 more than 70 universities so yeah and and it would be hard enough if you had all these people in one room working on a project but you know having it so distributed and so geographically diverse and culturally diverse it, it adds a new dimension to the challenges you've got and I, I don't doubt for a second that you you can't overcome those but there's going to be ways that you're going to have to you know overcome or sorry uh, develop new ways of doing things new processes and, and i'm excited to see how you do those things i'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to give you some best practices you. yeah sure. a question for you so you talked about our bid process so i want to just reiterate that yeah so the way that we've been doing things is every week we'll have a meeting for various sub teams and our team leads will put out different bids. So then in that week that those bids are assigned, the aerodynamics team will go and they'll, they'll do their best to meet those bid requirements and details that were listed out. And then after that, we'll, the next week, we'll release a new set of bids. So I wanted to ask you, as somebody who has worked and managed a lot of projects, what is your opinion on the way that we're doing things? And do you think we, should, we could do it a better way? So from, from my understanding of the way that your, your bid system works, um, you know, talking to Colin, it seems like you've, you're making a ton of great progress using that, that method. And, and what I like is, Colin, what you told me the other day is you're, you're, you're trusting people to do what they commit to do. And yeah. you're, you're, not, you're not micromanaging them, which is, which is great. I mean, I, I think in industry, we often kind of forget that. And there's an, an element of kind of losing trust of individuals and accountability. So process then takes over and you have to be like, super militant with making sure everything's tracked to the nth degree. So the way I understand your bid system process, your subsystem leads are defining what work you're going to do, like the actual tasks. Yeah, yes. Oh uh, yeah, I'll explain it real quick. And then um, Shiva already did a good overview, but then more even more specific. So they put out um, a task based off of what um, we talked about in our leadership meetings. And then that task, um, and they that task is on a document that has all the parameters for um, that is specific assignment. Um, so design parameters as well as like a due date pretty much, um, and how they need to present the information. Um, and then they just post that in our Slack channel. So their respective Slack channel, if it's an arrow bid, they'll post in the arrow Slack channel and then people volunteer for that because we're a volunteer project. We make everything like volunteer. We don't want to reach out to people and force them on something if they don't want to do it because the whole thing is to, for people to be able to, um, volunteer for things they wanted to work on. Um, and things they want to learn about and stuff they enjoy. Um, so that's worked really good because the whole um, of people not completing the work is really a non-issue for us because people are do, like they've chosen to do that. They're asking to do that pretty much. Um, so that's been super effective of us as a volunteer um, project. I know it's a little different industry because when you're paying people, like you expect them to do things. We don't expect anything of our members. We want them to do stuff and we ask them to do stuff. And the way we're kind of measuring our like, and that's worked for us because ev so far, anytime one of our leads asks for something to get done, like it gets done because people are passionate about this project and get excited. Anytime you tell an engineer, like plane go boom and fast, like they just get super excited. So <laughs> me included. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty easy to keep um, everybody motivated and everybody has the same passion and like drive in the project, which is super inspiring as well because um, everybody sees its value, which is like super exciting. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And coming back to your point, Shiva, I think as long as I'm, I'm, I'm reticent to sort of give you best practices and tell you that, you know, this is the way you should do it, because this is my experience of when things go wrong and, 
you know, I, I have this, I have these scars of things happening in industry and learning from them, but the best way you can learn a, a, a new process or, a, you know, methodology is frankly to maybe get experience of when it, something doesn't work because you learn from failures, you learn from mistakes, right? And I'm not saying what you're doing is a mistake. All I'm saying is that as you progress through the project, the way that it's currently working may not stay the same for the whole duration of the project. You may run into issues with, you know, people not being sure of what their responsibilities are, kind of maybe some uh, duplication of work. And uh, so, so I think what I would recommend, and I've, I've mentioned this to you, Colin, is the bid system sounds great. I would just want, want to ensure that all of those detailed tasks flow up to a top level that enables you to get that broad view of how how all of those tasks are tying to the ultimate goal of the project so that you don't find yourself two, three months down the line and you know maybe people have done work that's, that's not directly adding value to the, the end result or maybe kind of going off on tangents, which is not, it's not a bad thing. And like you said, Colin, th this isn't a sort of corporate work environment. You guys shouldn't feel bad about going off on tangents and doing stuff because if you find that you come up with a different solution or you modify it and it's going to be better more effective or cooler then great um so i i, th I think what, what i wanted to impart um in this project is the right level of project management that enables you to stay focused on the cool parts of the project which is designing the the supersonic uav and um, but gives you the best tools that I know that will ensure that the project is a success because that's what I want to see. I, I want to see what you guys have set out to do come to fruition. And so if I can help in some way by giving you some guiding tips, then yeah, yeah. And to this point, or until about last week, like um, we were really fine. Like um, our ability to um, communication was really well among our leadership. All the leaders knew exactly what they were doing and what needed to be done. Um, but they can only do that to a certain extent before things just start to get super complex. And this week and the last week, we started going into some more detailed things. Um, so everything just kind of multiplies. It doesn't just like add, it's like multiplies because everything has two things come off of it that need to be done kind of thing. Um, so tomorrow, um, me and Cole, the chief engineer, are going to sit down for a couple hours and come up with a very like scheduled plan or scheduled plan of, um, yeah, um, yep, of, of what we want to do with the project and like where we want to go um, in the future to make sure that we're using everybody's time the most effectively. Um, and that's kind of what we're pulling from. Like his advice for that has been, or your advice, Matt, has been um, key um, to, we realized we saw the problem. And then because we have advisors, industry professionals like yourself to point us in the right direction, when we saw the issue, we knew how to solve it um, by sitting down and just coming up with a, a schedule. Um, so that's exciting. And then I just wanted to say this earlier, you were talking about failing um, and how it's like okay to fail. Uh, one of my favorite quotes of all time, it's from Elon Musk. I'm a huge Elon Musk fanboy, if everybody can't tell. <laughs> but Wait, uh, Colin, do you like Elon Musk? Yeah, yeah, I do a little bit. But uh, <laughs> he said, failure is an option here. If, you, if things are not failing, you are not innovating enough. And I think that's like super cool. And I think if you ever watch SpaceX, you see that kind of thing. Um, and that's what, and I think a lot of start, that's how startups are. That's why like startups are so exciting because they fail a lot, but they just like keep trying and failure always usually is because like they do something cool. Um, so, uh, I think with the aerospace industry today, if you look at NASA, 
And I know this is an Apollo 13 associated phrase, but you know, people say failure is not an option. Yeah. But I think the mentality in the aerospace industry needs to change into this more iterative kind of approach. Yeah. Where failure can be an option. Yeah, but it has to be. It has to be. Um purposeful failure that like points you closer and closer to your end goal rather than just like lack of effort kind of thing um and i think that's really important and i think sorry matt i think what enables you to take those those risks and and i think the key term here is calculated risks um because you know with with what we saw in in the news recently with you know spacex starship um flying for the first time that that was not a super high stakes um you know risk that they're taking they've developed numerous prototypes of of starship and numerous ones of them have blown up or crumpled on the test stand but that's okay because that's exactly what qualification testing should be now you wouldn't you wouldn't take such a leap of faith with a crewed mission you wouldn't put you wouldn't put people on top of that that grain silo. <laughs> and it, you, yeah. you, when you, you say just... grain silo, it, it really was a grain silo. <laughs> but so, so I mean, and something else I wanted to touch on um, is is risk management. And you know, when when you're working on a project, um, you you need to be able to identify and classify the risks that you're taking. Um, you know, both technically and programmatically. So I I distinguish those two because there's there's technical risks, you know, there's, there's a risk that when you do your first flight, the, the aircraft blows up and you lose your first prototype. There's a risk that both Colin and I kind of cringe to that because we're, <laughs> oh, we're, we're, we're here like thinking about, okay, and, how much money and, and, is this thing going to I know cost? you don't want to hear it, but so, so, you know, and, and, and there's other technical risks around, you know, interaction between different uh, systems. And then there's, there's programmatic risks, which get into the more organizational stuff like, you know, when everyone goes back to school in, in the fall, like how do you retain the same level of interaction and contribution? There's, you know, obviously the challenges with working with a broad in, like an international team and, you know, export control considerations and all that. But being able to identify those risks enables you to then do something about them. And one thing that I, I think we, we should implement on this project is not a, not a super onerously detailed and because I've got you know in my head my risk register from my prior job was you know hundreds of lines and massive column spreadsheets with dollar values against every risk and probability assessments and all this kind of stuff and I think there's value in doing that to a certain degree for each risk you basically want to classify how likely is it to happen and what's the impact of it happening so one thing that um, Colin you and I should should work on in the near future is is classifying identifying and and categorizing risks both technical and programmatic and that's where i think cole needs to be involved in this as a technical lead to to really just get a listing and i would expect on this project to have at least 20 or 30 big ticket items that you need to focus on or or at least be aware of and then you you decide what you want to do with them some some you're just going to say yep that's just a cost of doing business we're going to have to accept that risk others you're going to be like that is unacceptable we need to do something to like make that not a risk or reduce its impact. So that, that's that's one thing that I'll probably be a bit of a, um, a broken record on in terms of, of implementing, because I think yeah. it's really important. Yeah. 
I think, well, yeah, there's a couple, like, programmatic, one thing that Matt and I have been talking about a lot is um, ITAR regulations and import-export things. So ITAR is the it's the U.S. regulations for who can work where if it, de- if it could possibly use for military applications and what can be imported and exported out of the United States. Um, and so, like, companies like SpaceX or... Um, Boeing or things like that, if you're working within um, their military departments and contracts, um, you have to be a U.S. citizen. So for us, um, because we're working on, and this is huge in aerospace specifically, it has to do with like arms and ammunition and weapon manufacturing and stuff as well, but because so many things in aerospace can be weaponized, um, it's huge in that industry. So for us, building an aircraft, we have to make sure that we are safe and that we're staying within these regulations, which um, we're meeting with professional counsel for this um, to make sure we are and we've done a lot of due diligence on our part to make sure nothing dangerous can be done with our aircraft it is a very specific purpose and even if someone tried if we tried it couldn't be used for a different purpose Um, and that's because its range is very limited itar talks about a 300 kilometer range is where they really start to get antsy about things we're like 53 kilometers so we're well below that and then as well as with just a couple of different things like payload um, useful payload so if anything in the aircraft is not like actively contributing to it flying that's a payload like everything in our aircraft is going to contribute to it flying so the avionics system um, our landing gear or whatever we're going to do for recovery our propulsion system fuel like you couldn't put it really anything else on this aircraft and have it perform well and we're staying within all those boundaries to make sure that our aircraft one completes our mission but still is um, within u.s regulations since we will be testing and um, two-thirds of our membership is within the united states Um, and that allows us for people like Matt, who is not a U.S. citizen, or for um, other students around the world to still be able to contribute to our project because it's not deemed a pot like weaponizable, pretty much. Um, and that's what we've been working on. And that's a huge risk because if some, if the U.S. government came at us and said, um, "Hey, you can't have foreign people working on this project," that would be like a huge detriment to our project because um, the international portion of our project has been like huge it's the working with different students around the world um inspiring different people around the world is a huge part of our mission um and we've put a lot of time and effort to developing this diverse group of people and if we had to cut one third of them out of it because of how we designed our aircraft um that would be like a very huge error in our design so that's what we've been working on a lot um, as well it's just like more lighthearted things of like recovery um <laughs> Like, that's a huge risk because we have to recover it, so we can't get around it, but how are we going to recover it the most safe way? So we've talked about landing gear. For some reason, everybody's stuck on flying it into a net at 80 miles an hour. <laughs> we'll, we'll see, but, um, yeah, a whole bunch of different options. Um, but, yeah, risk is definitely something we're always thinking about and need to think Dude, about if, more. If I'm just saying, if we crash, if we, sorry, if we glide this baby into a net, right, how cool would that be? That's like SpaceX <laughs> kind of stuff right there. Yeah, but it doesn't glide very well. That's the problem. This thing's like a needle just going. Sh- you've People have listening listened to previous podcasts and um, our weekly updates. It was very um, individual. Like, this is what propulsion is doing. This is what Arrow is doing. But this week, it was kind of a shift of this is what Arrow is doing with propulsion and structures. And this is what they're all doing together. And that's where the project gets really complicated. Um but also you start to see like huge progress and things really start to come together, which is super exciting. With your sub teams, yeah. you just need to be able to communicate well. And also if to your earlier point, Shiva, if you hear something you don't understand in a discussion, don't be afraid to be that person who puts the hand up and say, guys, I don't know what that means. 
can we just stop and explain that for a second yeah because i think a lot of times one you're not the only person in the room that it doesn't understand it so it helps the whole room whenever you're the one brave enough to stand up and say it but one thing i want to expand on um because i think pretty much everybody that's on this project or probably a lot of people that are listening to this podcast um they want to know what like what is a hiring manager looking for well i I think a mix um i think you've got to have a good technical basis to work from if you're doing obviously if you're going into engineering um or or just a good a good degree program background but more than that like I, i would tend to look at the experience you have and what you've done outside of those um, studies as, as sort of a measure of uh, your initiative and your ambition. Um, you know, I, I personally didn't do a ton outside of um, uh, my university studies. I, I had a pretty in, pretty intensive university uh, degree program. I was in lectures, you know, 30, almost 40 hours a week sometimes. And that doesn't always give you a lot of time, especially if you have to work jobs on the side. Um, but, you know, as, as long as you can, you know, I, I, I'm, when you're preparing for like interviews and things, it's so important to be able to get those regular interview questions and come up with some kind of boilerplate answers and working in projects is one of the best kind of experiences that you can get because you're going to get experiences. You're going to get questions around technical things, explain Reynolds number, Bernoulli's equation, all these kind of, kind of things. But, um, the, the questions I like to ask is are the kind of behavioral interview questions around tell me tell me a time when you worked in a team and you had someone who wasn't pulling their weight what did you do like how, how did you resolve this conflict and when you have real world experience of working in teams uh, maybe teams that have often conflicting goals um, or, or rather cross-functional teams so I've worked a lot um, you know with engineers uh, that you know, you've got production folk in the same room and they've got kind of different goals perhaps, but being able to, um, you know, bridge that gap and, and re- resolve conflict is, is really important. <laughs> also, uh, if you say the word schedule, you'll get a job. Yeah, if you're ever interviewing <laughs> with someone from the UK. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, yeah, what is, a, what is it that you, you've already touched on it a little bit, what is it that you as a hiring manager have looked for in individuals? Is it projects like this or is it just technical background like what kind of things do you look for a new hires resumes is, is not just a list of great technical accomplishments you know if, if you've if you've got a great degree and you've worked on a bunch of um, technical projects and you've got a lot of technical experience I mean that's great but you cannot understate how important that is working on lots of different projects um, with a, a good amount of individual responsibility on those projects but really what I look for most is, is an, um, an ability to communicate well with others, um, to be able to grasp complex technical concepts and translate them into simple terms. And that's where I think coming back to my earlier point about like passing on the information you learn um, is really is an important one because if you, if you are the absolute expert in aerodynamics, um, but you can't explain it to someone who doesn't know anything about aerodynamics. I'd question how, how well you understand it. Do you know what I mean? Like, because you need to be able to assimilate the information and, and turn it into uh, information that um, non-technical people can understand. I mean, I have a technical background, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not an actively, I'm not actively doing engineering now. So I rely on smart engineers 
to give me the right level of information so I can make decisions. I've got a bit of an advantage in that I, I do have that technical background, but I'm still not, you know, an expert in any one of the subjects that you guys are uh, with your sub teams. You just need to be able to communicate well. In in general, for me, what I what I look for most, and when I did go through um, the interview process with a number of candidates, the the first time I actually sat down and spoke with them after I'd seen their resume, after they'd done their numerical and verbal reasoning tests, and you kind of knew there was a, a good baseline. You know, just talking with someone and, and and knowing whether you could actually have a good work relationship with that person is so important for me, because I, frankly, I, I would I would rather have someone that I know is going to work really hard and be a good uh, team player and has a good attitude and a good sense of humor over someone who's like the world leading expert in this thing, but I could never like, you know, go have a beer with. I think my biggest thing is I want to know all, I want to know everything um, technically, but for me getting that macro view and be able to understand what each sub team is doing and hearing you say how important that is makes me feel a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even for Colin's sake, he's Colin is uh, going to be a sophomore next year in Oklahoma. So he's really, I think the biggest benefactor of this whole project. I'm a little, I'm a little baby. Yeah. No, yeah. It's been super beneficial, but, I, and hopefully it has been for everybody, even like all the older people and stuff. So um, hopefully well, even for like you, Matt, and all of our advisors, hopefully oh, they can learn something from us. When I wanted to say this earlier, you're talking about how I think we have the, we're lucky because as students, like there's no, um, there's not a huge risk factor. Like uh, we've talked about this from the beginning, like it's a win-win if the project ended now. So we don't really have to stress that much. Um, but um, we uh, like with industry and stuff, I think a lot of things that happen in industry are kind of like put in there through tradition. And it's like, um, and it gets kind of annoying and repetitive. It's the whole paperwork thing that everybody hates. It's like, Oh, so much paperwork. And I think aerospace mm-hmm. specifically is very well known for their, um, like very slow, um, traditional process. And I think one thing that's back to SpaceX, that's what has been so disruptive about them. You've seen a lot of companies kind of go down that route now and start to change their mindset a little bit because it's been successful. But from the other side and being on this project, um, I do sympathize and I understand now where a lot of those companies come from, because even with our project and 170 people, um, we started off, um, for specifically like project management software. We didn't use any, we were just using like, um, communication through Slack spreadsheets, stuff like that. Um, and then once we get like a hundred people in or so, it's like, Ooh, it'd be really nice if we had like a software that did this all for us. And there's plenty of them out there, like a whole bunch of them. Um, but transitioning all of our members over to that is like so hard to do and it's very scary to do. So, um, and we haven't even yet, we've really refined our processes and we're working great with what we have and how we're doing it. But I totally understand now why Boeing who has some thousands and thousands of employees all over the world, this is why they're so resistant to change because change is very scary, especially when you're a for-profit organization that's responsible for paying people's bills like any kind of change is a uh, very scary and hard to do. Yeah. I, would, I think it's important to draw a distinction between tradition that is based on a mature organization that has done things a certain way because it seems to have worked for them and they've kind of done it that way forever. Um, and then traditions that are dictated by more sort of regulatory things. And, and I think that's why aerospace has that kind of, um, 
you know, it, aerospace is known for being less innovative or less agile than sort of your big tech companies. Yeah, yeah. A, a, lot, a lot of that is because of the types of programs and contracts that these companies work with. When you work with the US government, there are very stringent requirements. You mentioned ITAR for one, um, security clearances, background checks, all this kind of stuff. And especially on government contracts where um, private contractors are taking taxpayer money, like that needs to be very closely monitored and audited um, down to like literally what you're spending um, at a dinner on a business trip for a particular mm-hmm. contract. I mean, it really is down to that level. And, and rightly so, because, you know, contractors shouldn't have carte blanche to just go and spend money um, at will when it's linked to a government contract. But, you know, the, the difference between tradition, and I agree with what you're saying, you know, SpaceX will, they are operating in an environment that, you know, is pretty heavily regulated. Um, like, granted, the sort of the space environment, the, the new space industry, as it's called, is a little bit of a sort of new frontier or, or wild west in terms of regulation. The final not, frontier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was going to be a Star Trek reference in there. Yep. Um, it's, it's, I would say it's not as heavily regulated as like civil airspace is yet. Yeah. But I think the yeah. key word there is yet because as space tourism starts to become more prevalent, you know, with Blue Origin working on, on that potentially the next... Speaking of, are you going to go? To space? Yeah. Oh yeah, load me up. I'm, oh, I'm really? in front of the line. Yeah, I would, I would, I would barf everywhere. What, you, what do you say for barf? I bet you have a fun word for that. Uh, Chum, chunder, chunder. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> I, I've never heard that one. Yeah, but no, I get super motion sick. I could not do anything in outer space. I just want to build the rockets. But going. Uh, on that's that's fine too. We need we need smart <laughs> people doing that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, th- I think as as these new industries are created and new regulations are, are put in place, you know, in, innovation and agility is, is super important. Um, it needs to be done within a framework that is sustainable and safe though. And that's the yep. key thing. Cause you know, SpaceX is not going to have a viable future business if they, you know, basically ignore those kind of safety regulations, which they're not because anytime they would come to putting people on things, they're going to be extremely vigilant. They're going to follow all dot their I's cross their T's and make sure they're following all the regulations because that's you need to build trust right and yeah but but uh, but i i do like the way that a lot of these new new companies are approaching um sort of going contrary to a lot of the legacy contracts and methodologies and trying new things and innovating yeah. i think that's that's like, good for the industry we've seen that with um nasa actually um well one with just artemis and everything they've gone down a completely different track of going more towards the commercial Mm-hmm. They've rep- they're copying what their commercial partners have done, which is super exciting because whole cost plus contracting in the United States with NASA and everything has been going on for years since we went to the moon. Um, so to see change for better is always exciting. And then like with um, the crew missions, originally NASA said they would not um, ever fly humans on a reused booster or capsule. And then while they were up in orbit, someone made a decision. It's like, never mind, our third flight will be with a reused capsule. So it's like, it's cool to see NASA when companies able to convince these very mm. like well cemented um, organizations to change their mind a little bit and start to see and do different things. So that's super well, exciting. Even today, I, I read an article that said the U.S. Space Force is um, actively committing to um, use commercially developed uh, 
technologies for their future missions. So whether it's communications, national security missions, that sort of stuff, using yeah. commercially developed technologies is, is going to be a I think that's thing. Um, in terms of product boom, I think that's super cool for us to see everything, how everything is shifting. And when me and Colin talked about this project at the beginning, it was, you know, a fast iterative approach that we said wanted to be the complete opposite of the current aerospace industry. As we wrap up today at the podcast, I just wanted to thank you, Matt, for being on the show with us and covering a lot of different things from how to project manage and how to take an amazing idea like breaking the sound barrier with a supersonic UAV and dial that down into the different subsections and subteams needed to make this thing a success. And we are super privileged to have you as an advisor. Um, where can the audience find you on the internet? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Matthew Simon Stott, or one word. I'm happy to reach out to anyone. If anyone on the project or outside of the project has got any questions, um, please, please reach out to me. And thank you so much for having me on, guys. It's been a, it's been a pleasure, and I'm super excited to keep working with you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. I can't um, even begin to express our gratitude towards everything um, you've done so far for the project and really helped us, and your guidance has been um, key to our success thus far. And it will continue to be, I know. So I'm super excited for our future. And I'm excited because I think I know for sure I will. And I hope a lot of our members of our project will use you as a tool whenever they're going to apply for different jobs and use your experience because kind of a mentor. Because a lot of times we don't get access to people as it, normal students who get access to professionals and be able to talk to them, except when they're interviewing with a professional. Um, and that's not, the, that's not the person you want to talk to for the first time. You want to be able to get used to it. So. Yeah, in terms of Project Boom, in the next few weeks, we're trying to ramp up as we present our project in front of a group of industry professionals and present everything we've done so far for the entire world. So for us at Project Boom, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. So please keep listening to the podcast and keep in touch with us. I've been Shiva Valbanani here with Colin Watson and Matthew Stott, and this is us signing off.